listening to From Maker to Manufacturing, a podcast about what it really takes to grow a handmade business. Hey guys, welcome back to From Maker to Manufacturing. I'm your host, Sarah Cooley, and this is episode number six. On today's episode, I'm going to do a Q&A episode, and there isn't a special guest on today's episode. Today will just be me. So we'll see if that works or if most people just find that annoying. I scheduled this Q&A episode mostly because a lot of our upcoming guests are currently preparing for the National Stationery Show in just a few weeks, and I have a lot of interviews scheduled for June, but we were a little light on interviews the last couple of weeks, so I didn't want to skip another week. I really wanted to give you guys an episode, so hopefully you enjoy this episode. I don't know how helpful it will be since we only got a handful of questions for our first Q&A, but as this is a new show and this is only episode six, it might have been slightly audacious for me to do a Q&A episode this soon anyway. I'm going to answer these questions to the best of my ability based on my experience. For some background, um, my company, Simply Curated, is a candle company. I currently have two employees both at about 30 hours a week, and one will be going to full-time next month. So that's just some background about the size of the company. Currently, wholesale is our biggest revenue driver. I focused a lot on wholesale kind of right in the beginning because I knew I wanted to grow quickly. So a bunch of these questions are focused around wholesale and trade shows and hiring employees. However, this first question coming up is about branding. How do you brand yourself? And when you've made a decision to be a certain type of brand, how do you then market your brand according to this new decision that you've made? So question number one comes from Naveen. And the question is, when you decide to be a luxury brand like yourself, how do you find and market yourself to stores? And what's it like to work with larger retailers? When I first started Simply Curated, I didn't really know what to call it. Some of you might remember Simply Curated wasn't always just a candle company. I used to buy and sell vintage housewares online, and that was kind of where the curated part initially came from, and then I just stuck with it. When I made the decision to transition into being primarily a candle brand, it was a little difficult because I just didn't know what to call the company or how to describe it. For a while, I called it a candle studio. Uh, I called it a small batch handmade candle company. Um, But eventually, I decided to go with a luxury candle company. So when I refer to Simply Curated, I usually say, hi, I'm Sarah Cooley. I'm the owner of Simply Curated, a luxury candle company based in Grand Rapids, Michigan. One time I was taking this course with Megan Amon and she said something that really struck a chord with me at the time, which was a luxury brand becomes a luxury brand because they decided to be one. And it was like a light bulb all of a sudden went off in my head and to position yourself as that kind of a brand that's all it really is it's positioning you are going to say and show and act like a luxury company and people will start to believe that you are now of course this goes without saying that if you are marketing a beanie baby 
I don't know why that was the first example that came to my head, but something that is not necessarily known as a luxury good, it might be difficult to position yourself as a luxury product or a a luxury company. But if you're selling something that has a luxury category, for example, um, let's just say handbags. Handbags come in all price ranges, right? You can get a purse for $10 at H&M or you can get one for $10,000. It really runs the gamut. So deciding where you want your company to be positioned in terms of how you're perceived is an important decision. But that being said, once you make that decision and you decide, okay, this is going to be a luxury product and we're going to sell things in this price range. Once you've made that decision, you kind of have to stick to your guns. You can't be frustrated or tempted to change or shift your positioning the first time you run across somebody who thinks what you're trying to sell them is too expensive. If I got discouraged every time someone told me my candles were overpriced, I would be out of business. But I sell an expensive product. It's expensive for a reason, but I also keep the price range in a you know certain range for the fact that that higher price mentally positions the luxury product in someone's mind as having more value. People assume expensive things are worth more. We do use a very expensive wax. Our materials are expensive and our most expensive candle does have real gold on the container. But it's really a perception thing. Price affects perception. It affects how people value your products. That decision to become a luxury company, it also affects our marketing. It also affects the photography, the visuals, the branding, the aesthetic of all of those choices are made through the lens of luxury. Not extreme luxury, but an affordable luxury that is a wonderful gift. You have to kind of be always thinking with that lens in mind going forward once you've made that decision. Now, finding and marketing yourself to stores is also very important. When you look at stores, you have to kind of look at the other things that they're carrying to determine whether or not your products would be a good fit. Now, because we carry other products on our website, we carry some cards and some other uh, lifestyle products, mostly like beauty, apothecary, uh, some natural like skincare products, and then paper goods. We get pitches all the time for people uh, wanting us to carry their line in our online store. Now, disclaimer, our online store does not a lot of volume. So I think people pitch me because I have a high visibility and, and the store is curated really well. But I hardly ever place reorders with those vendors. There's only one or two that have a decent enough sell-through for us to reorder regularly. And that has nothing to do with how good the product is. It has to do with the fact that we're a tiny online Shopify store with very low traffic. That being said, I've seen a handful of pitches and the thing that irritates me the most is when I get a pitch that says, I love your store. I think our products would be such a great fit. Now, this irritates me because this is a line that I use and that our wholesale account manager uses when pitching new stores. However, please only use this line if your products would actually be a good fit in that store. That means doing your research, looking at photos, look at their Instagram, look at the other products that they carry, and if you do actually think your products would be a good fit, then say that, and that's important. But if I take a look and the 
the first thing I see is something that I in not a million years would put in my store, then I just dismiss it. Even if it's not that off base or might be, you know, something that my customers want, I'm not even giving it a second chance because you said, I think this would be a good fit in your store and this looks like absolutely nothing that's in my store right now. So when you're finding products and you're trying to figure out how to market yourself to stores, you have to be marketing yourself to the right stores. The store has to be the kind of store you want to be in. Also, it's important when you do get a store that's interested, that wants to buy you, a lot of times you'll get people that come to you, maybe they found you through Instagram and they want to carry your products in their store. Now, this might seem like an incredibly rude thing to do. However, you kind of have to judge that store by its cover. You want all of your retailers to be successful with your products. If you look at their store and what they're asking about based on the products that they currently carry if you don't think that your products would sell well in that store tell the store owner or the buyer that or tell them I don't think this line is going to do that well but maybe our other collection or maybe you can suggest something else that you think would do better based on who you're going to assume their customer base is now that being said it's uh, we've had stores that have said no we really want to carry this we really love it and we've sent them an order and Three months later, we check in with them and it's not selling. And I know why. It's because it's too expensive for their customer. And I could have saved them time and headache and, you know, all of and shipping and all this other stuff if, you know, we had kind of open communication and nobody got offended when I said, I don't think this is going to work well for you guys. So be flexible with your retailers. You want to have a good relationship with them. If you think this particular line or something that you have might be better or a better fit for them, just tell them. Don't take the order that they're giving you initially at face value. You can always work with them. And um, I think that it will be a better relationship kind of going forward. Working with bigger retailers is a lot more intimidating. We've really only had a good back and forth relationship with Nordstrom. Our candles were in Urban Outfitters, but it was through our sales rep. So unfortunately, I don't really have that relationship with that buyer. So I can't particularly speak to that relationship. That being said, if anybody from Urban Outfitters is listening to this, we would love a reorder from you guys. Call me. Okay, back to Nordstrom. So Nordstrom, it was very intimidating to get the order from the buyer after a lot of back and forth and they will try to get you down to a lower price and all of that kind of back and forth. We finally get the PO. You get the purchase order from them. Now it's laid out in a very different way than when a normal purchase order would look like. But the first thing that I noticed was they were ordering our cocktail collection, which is a almost $50 candle, and our travel candles, which do really, really well. And I knew that they would do really well. They ordered the travel candles in four fragrances, so four different SKUs. But the cocktail collection, they only ordered one fragrance, one SKU. This terrified me. I knew it wasn't going to do well because I think that more is better. And even if they kept the same number of candles but diversified the fragrances or like carried the same four that they did in the travel candles, I think it would have been more successful. However, because it was Nordstrom, I was trusting the buyer's expertise and I didn't say anything. 
I didn't say, hey, maybe this would do better. And I didn't feel like it was within my place to say. It was very intimidating. So I just went ahead and processed the order the way that they originally wrote it out. Now, you know, cut to four months later, five months later, when we're getting our initial kind of sales reports back from them, um, it was not a surprise to me that the cocktail collection didn't do as well as the travel candles. But I think it wouldn't have been as bad if there had been more fragrances so I feel like when you're working with buyers whether it's a small store or a larger store you really have to have that back and forth relationship they appreciate your expertise because you've been selling this product into other stores so you know what your best sellers are you know what works better in this type of shop versus this type of shop so don't be afraid to give your feedback based on what they're telling you and to kind of build that relationship it's a relationship business okay I know I said this first question wasn't about wholesale but it ended up being a lot about wholesale so our next question is from kcollin78 on Instagram, and she says, I'd be interested in hearing a bit about breaking into the wholesale market. Side note, I said she. I'm not sure if this is a girl or not. My apologies if you're a man. So breaking into the wholesale market. First question you have to ask yourself is why do you want to sell wholesale? If you want to sell wholesale just because you want the thrill of seeing your products in a physical store, that might not necessarily be the best decision. Being direct to consumer, as you know if you watch Shark Tank ever, is way more lucrative and a better position to be in if you just want to make a lot of money. But it's easier to grow quicker and increase your top line revenue. That's the total sales dollars you had for the year, not your profit but your top line revenue, the total dollar amount in sales you had for the year. It's easier to increase that because when you're selling wholesale, your average order value is 5x, 10x what an average order value on your e-commerce site or Etsy might be. The reason that I went so aggressively into wholesale in the beginning was because I realized it would be very difficult for me to sell candles online as a virtually unknown brand. Candles are something that you have to smell and experience before you're, you know, convinced that you want to purchase it. I realized I needed to be in stores. So I went aggressively after wholesale. The first thing I did when I decided that I wanted to sell wholesale was stop selling retail. I stopped selling at the market that I was in I was weekly every week in a artist's market in Brooklyn and I pulled out of that weekly market because I knew I needed to kind of reevaluate everything. I was possibly going to have to change some of my pricing. I was going to have to change a lot of stuff. So I took this course that Megan Amon had on her website designing an MBA. It was her introduction to selling wholesale e-course and it was just like an e-book at the time. Now she has a much more comprehensive uh, course on Creative Live that I recommend to people all the time. If you just search Megan Amon on Creative Live, you'll find all her classes. She's a really great teacher. So the first thing I really did was reevaluate my pricing, making sure I was priced effectively for wholesale. We do not have time to go into that. It is... I like you I could do a whole hour on pricing for wholesale and I'm sure next week when Megan is on we'll probably end up talking a lot about that also so stay tuned so you need to make sure your price is effective for wholesale and what that means is you need to be making a profit at the wholesale price point initially I was making about a 50% 
profit at wholesale. And let me tell you why that's not enough money. When you make a 50% profit at wholesale, that means it costs you half of what your wholesale price is. But that means that once you sell the product, you only have enough money to make the product again one time. So there's never any extra money to run the business for all of the other expenses like marketing and rent. And yes, it should be figured into your overhead. It should be figured into your cost of the product. And it usually is, but you don't get that in one lump sum. You're talking about selling 20 candles at a time or 30 candles at a time. That's not your entire rent payment. That's just enough to buy more materials to make your product again. So you really need to build in a healthy profit margin at the wholesale price point. Not outrageous, but you have to make it work. Otherwise, wholesale will just be painful because you will feel like, and I feel like this a lot, I'm selling a lot of stuff. Our top line revenue is good. How come there's never any money in the bank? That's because all your money is going back into materials and you're not left with any money left over to do trade shows, print catalogs, um, pay a sales rep commission, whatever it is, you need extra money because there are other things besides just the cost of your materials and labor that you need to run a business. Our next question is, I have a great list of wholesale shops that have inquired about my journals over the years. I send them newsletters and keep them current on my listings. What are good ways to gauge their interest in purchasing if they're not regular purchasers? This question comes from Katie. So if you've got a list of wholesale shops they've inquired and you responded, they asked for info and you sent them back a catalog or whatever it is, just putting them on your newsletter after that is probably not enough to get that first order. That first order is the most important. If they have ordered one time and you never got a reorder, you never heard from them again, then again, just keeping them on your newsletter is not enough. You need to reach out directly. You need to email the buyer directly, the one who initially contacted you, and say, hey, I sent you some info a little while ago. I wanted to know if you have any questions, if you have any thoughts. Would you like to place an opening order? You need to ask that question specifically in the email. Ask for the opening order. If they placed an order and then you never heard from them again, once again, you need to follow up directly. You need to email the buyer or get on the phone and call them and say, hey, 10 months ago, you bought this much product in your stores. I want to know how it did. How were the sales? Do you have any feedback? Because even if they don't order again, something that they tell you about how your product did in stores or what customers' reactions were to it might help you in the future, might help you with your other accounts. Also, if they say, oh my gosh, your product sold out so fast that I forgot to reorder because it wasn't on my shelf anymore. I wasn't staring at it. We totally want more of these. I just forgot. Now, this is less likely to happen if you are sending regular newsletters. Regular newsletters to your wholesale customers and people who are interested and on your wholesale list will avoid this, oh, I forgot about you problem. So you really do need both. A way to gauge their interest in purchasing should be, do they email you back after you send them a catalog? Are they excited? Do they want to place an order? If you haven't heard from them after you sent back initial information that they requested, you really do need to follow up. If you send samples, you need to follow up. You need to do that one-on-one, -on -one, not just put them on your newsletter list and hope that they eventually decide to place an order. You need to kind of check in with them, see if they received the samples, did they like them? you know, all of those kinds of things. 
Our next question is specifically about trade shows. Jack B. Nimble Candles asks, can you talk about the process of setting up for a show like America's Mart in Atlanta? How did you decide on your display and what happens during the show? Do you need a full color catalog that is professionally photographed? Would you be willing to talk about the costs even in just a vague way? Thank you so much for this question. To clarify, Simply Curated has never done a trade show independently on our own. All of our experience has been working with a sales rep group, the American Design Club, and the primary show that we do with them is New York Now in New York. I know very little about the America's March show in Atlanta, but I probably know more than most people because I have researched it. The difference between New York Now and America's Mart is that America's Mart is a permanent market, meaning it's up year round. There are permanent showrooms that are there and open all year round. And then during a few shows a year, a few trade shows, there are some temporary vendors that will set up for that trade show specifically for the week. If you are talking about setting up for a show, you're most likely talking about going into the temporaries. And I've heard while Some people can be very successful in the temporaries. It can be more difficult because a lot of buyers do just go to the permanent showrooms. To get into a permanent showroom, that would mean you would be working with a sales rep. For New York Now, the entire show takes place at the Javits Center. It's the same place that the National Stationery Show takes place, which is another big wholesale show if you're in the paper goods industry. These shows, much like the temporaries in Atlanta, don't set up year-round. Basically, you go in for the week, you set up your booth, you break it down at the end of the show. Setting up for a show like America's Mart or like New York Now on your own can be very difficult and it can be very expensive. We were thinking about doing New York Now on our own this summer. But it turns out once we looked at our budget and with some other new things that we're trying to do, I didn't have enough money. I wasn't going to have enough cash in the bank to really do it. Ultimately, for one of these shows, I think a good starting budget or something to try to stay around or under is about $10,000. The most expensive thing at these shows will be the cost of your booth. The show is going to rent you booth space, probably starting at about 100 square feet, a 10 foot by 10 foot cube is going to be your booth space you pay the show between two and four thousand dollars for that space again I've never gotten prices for America Smart in Atlanta so I don't really know I do know that in New York you're talking about four to five thousand dollars just for that cube of concrete floor that usually includes pipe and drape but if you want to build hard walls or foam walls That's going to be another expense. Either you're going to rent them from the show or from another provider, or you're going to build them yourself and have to ship them or drive them to the show. Setting up can be very difficult because I know that at least in New York, you're not allowed to use power tools. You're not allowed to set up your own electricity. There are a lot of rules and regulations as to what you can and can't do when setting up your own booth because all these shows and convention centers have unions and contracts prohibiting you from doing certain things. This all gets really detailed and you would really need to look at a show contract to really know what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do. Deciding on your display is very important. It's probably the most important thing but it can be very tricky because you do have a budget to consider. What you want in your head might not be feasible within your budget. 
Ikea furniture pretty much wins the trade show circuit. Unless you're a master carpenter or know someone in your family who is a master carpenter who is willing to work for free, building a 100% custom booth is probably not in your budget for a first show. But if you can find a good deal, you know, it could be worth it and, and you might be able to get exactly what you want. But it's easier, in my opinion, to stick with pre-existing furniture. For our booth at New York Now, because it's not our own booth, the displays are set up by our reps and we come in and bring all of our product and kind of decide it on the display within our little section, which was much simpler to do than setting up an entire booth. In planning for New York Now when we were going to do it this summer, I pretty much budgeted out all of the furniture I would need and renting hard walls from a company that does show rentals. I didn't want to build hard walls myself for my first booth because I would rather save on shipping costs from Michigan to New York than pay the extra and have them just set up when I get there. So there are easier ways to do things and there are harder ways to do things. But just like everything else, there are more expensive ways to do things and there are ways to save money. You kind of have to decide what you are willing to splurge on and what you're willing to save on. There are a lot of really great resources, but my favorite one regarding trade shows has to be Trade Show Bootcamp. Originally, the bootcamp was designed for the paper industry, but it's really helpful with all these details. She even has specific trade show booth guideline webinars that you can just buy individually as opposed to doing the whole bootcamp. As far as catalogs go, yes, you will need a full color catalog. It doesn't necessarily need to be professionally photographed. It just has to be professional. That doesn't mean it was done by a professional. This is one of those situations where you really need to know your strengths. If you're good with layout programs, if you're good at taking pictures, most of the time the photos that you have on your website are sufficient for your first catalog or line sheet, but you need to be comfortable with laying them out in a catalog format. I would suggest looking at a lot of wholesale catalogs for inspiration before you do this. You can also hire somebody if this is really not your strength. But again, this is one of those places where you have to decide if you're going to splurge or if you're going to save. Printing catalogs will be ridiculously expensive. It will shock you how expensive it is. But in my opinion, it's still worth it. I still think that physical catalogs are a great way to leave the buyer with something tangible if you're not able to give every single person that comes into your booth a sample of your products. Plus, when you hand them that catalog, you get to take their business card, which means you're really growing your list and your number of leads in interested people. I have seen a lot of companies, especially for their first show, decide not to do a full printed catalog and instead to do something like a postcard or a handout that has one or two photos on it and a link to view their catalog online. In my opinion, this is risky because somebody could just simply never go to that website and you would never know if they went or not. But it can still be a way to save money if you're really, really hesitant to do a full catalog your first time out or just invest the money in that particular expense. What happens during a wholesale trade show is very complicated. Again, there are a lot of resources out there, guys. I really recommend Megan Almond's wholesale course on Creative Live. She does this whole thing on trade shows where they do mock buyer interviews. Um, not interviews, but like mock buyer conversations and, and talk about what are the, some of the things that buyers will ask you during a show. 
I also really recommend the book Showtime. It's a really small paperback that you can read in an afternoon that will answer a lot of your questions about trade shows. It's available on Amazon. I'm pretty sure it's under 20 bucks. Again, I don't mean to be dismissive about this question, but there are so many details and it would really take a long time. And I do think that there are some really great resources out there that people have put time and money into that deserve to get paid for those resources and for that information. Since I've taken a lot of those courses, I feel slightly bad regurgitating all of that information for free on a podcast. Plus, that seems just really unfair. However, trade shows aren't nearly as scary as you think they are. Unless you're somebody who's extremely introverted and doesn't like selling things, in which case I would say find a good sales rep because selling things, if it's not for you, then trade shows are really not for you. You pretty much have to be selling yourself and selling your product 100% of the time. It's incredibly exhausting. You're on for six to eight hours a day, for four or five days in a row. They're very, very tiring, but they can be incredibly rewarding, both for contacts and getting orders, but also for meeting with press and growing your general list for outreach and your warm and cold leads. Trade shows can be a great place to get a lot of accounts quickly. That being said, if your product isn't really up to the quality that buyers expect or if the market is already oversaturated, it really depends on the show. It really depends on the people that come during that year. It depends on the weather. There are so many things that can make or break a trade show. I had a friend who was a jewelry designer who did New York Now for the first time and she said it was the worst show ever. She did much better when she was on the accessory circuit or doing some of the more fashion trade shows like Capsule. So doing your research into trade shows and which one is right for you, it can really make or break your trade show from the start. Just because a trade show is physically close to you doesn't mean it's necessarily the right show for your company. Again, this kind of goes back to what we were talking about all the way at the beginning of the episode when it comes to positioning. If you're trying to position your company in a certain category or you would like to sell to certain types of stores, you have to think about what trade shows those kinds of stores go to or do they go to trade shows at all? There's a huge argument these days being made for no trade shows where buyers would rather find something new and up and coming that not a lot of other stores already have. So it really depends on how big you want your company to be and what kind of stores you want to sell to. There are some really big companies out there that have never done a trade show. Kristen from PF Candle Co. is my number one example. PF Candle Co. has never done a trade show. They don't currently work with any sales reps to my knowledge and they're huge. But if you love selling in person, you really feel that your products need to be seen in person and you're just a really great salesperson, trade shows might be for you. So it's really important to look at all the costs, including all your travel costs, your shipping, printing your catalogs, hiring somebody to be in the booth with you because it's hard to do alone, although not impossible. There are so many things and they add up very quickly, which is why I usually say the $10,000 mark is about where you're probably going to end up for your first show. I know people that have spent way more and I know a couple people that spent a little less, but all in all, it's going to be expensive. Our next couple questions are about hiring employees and expanding your team. Christy from Daydream Prints asks, I'd love to hear about the transition of going from being a solopreneur to expanding and having a team. The transition, it really just depends on 
I don't know, how you kind of envision the company. If you've always loved working by yourself and being a maker, one of the huge benefits for you is solitude, then going from being a solopreneur to expanding and having a team, it might be a really difficult transition. You might want to look at how you can maximize the amount of money you're making within your current limits as a single person maker. Being a boss is not for everybody. And I don't mean that in the use of the phrase boss, like, oh, I'm a boss. No, I mean in being somebody's boss, in being an employer, in being a manager of people. If you don't think that you would be good at that, it might be a very difficult transition. You need to consider the fact that you're going to have to teach someone else how to do whatever it is you're hiring them to do. For me, the first thing I really wanted to hire someone to do was the actual production and making of our products. For a lot of people that I know, especially people who strongly identify as makers, outsourcing the production, not outsourcing, but even just giving it to someone else can be a really hard thing. And a lot of them, it's the last thing they give up or something that they never want to give up. For me, I realized that my strengths were more as a marketer and a salesperson and in dealing with the operational side of the business and and constantly pushing for growth. So I realized that as soon as I could get somebody to help with the production and take some of that burden off of me, it would be much easier to grow quicker because I would have more time to focus on the actual selling of the products, getting new accounts, growing the business if I didn't have to worry about making the products on a day-to-day basis. When I first hired someone for production, they weren't full-time they were barely part-time. They were one or two days a week and I still did have to do a lot of the production. But I quickly found myself in this cycle where one month would be really good and then I would pretty much spend the next month making all of those orders because I'm much less productive as a production person when I have 50 other things to do. I'm still answering emails and then I'm doing shipping and then I'm doing all this other stuff. I'm not just sitting there 20 four hours a week or 40 hours a week only making things. I have a lot of other stuff going on. So I'm less efficient at production than somebody whose sole job is production. So I would find myself in a situation where we would get a lot of orders, you know, quickly or in a short period of time. Then I would spend the next three to four weeks pouring candles for all of those orders and shipping them out and getting paid. Then I would find myself in a month where we would have almost no orders the next month because I spent the whole month worrying about production and getting those orders out the door that I hadn't spent any time on our marketing, emailing new stores, pitching, following up with our existing retailers and getting new orders. So I had no new orders to work on and it really started to hurt our cash flow because the money was constantly yo-yoing up and down and that is very difficult for a business. Once you realize that hiring somebody will make your company more profitable because the time will become more efficient, the time spent doing whatever it is that they're doing will be more efficient because that's the only thing that they're focusing on, you realize that employees start to pay for themselves. If they're good employees, your general business will grow and it will kind of become you know, very beneficial and and they will pay for themselves because you're able to do more work, have more sales because those other things are taken care of. Paul asks how to go about hiring your first employee. Hiring your first employee is incredibly scary, as I mentioned before, but one of the big reasons it was scary for me was stability. 
if I was providing somebody with a job, I wanted to be sure I could continue to pay that person on a regular basis. I wasn't even paying myself on a regular basis, but I was so scared to not be able to pay somebody else because they were entrusting their livelihood in my business. You kind of just have to take the jump. But if you can jump after having saved a decent amount of cash to help with those first few weeks of training and getting the employee up to speed while still paying their salary or their hourly wages, if you can have saved a little bit to cover that kind of beginning period, I think it will help a lot. Jack B. Nimble's Candles on Instagram asked, I'd love to know how you go about finding good employees as your business grows. Did you go through a service or post somewhere? I feel like the luckiest employer in the world because my two current employees kind of found me. I didn't post anywhere. I didn't have a job opening at the time. For my first employee, Lacey, who is uh, full-time on production right now, it was a recommendation from a local friend. Somebody knew that I was looking to hire somebody and recommended her before I even you know, put out a listing. Um, Lacey wasn't technically our first employee. We had another employee for production very, very part-time, just like one day a week or one or two days a week for a couple of hours, like no more than five. It was like five to ten hours a week total. Um, But she had another full-time job, and it was very difficult to – you know, kind of get that consistency. So when I realized that I really wanted somebody to just be more available for production – and I knew I was going to start looking soon, I kind of asked around first, let people know I was going to be hiring because you never know who else is looking for a job. And usually recommendations from friends, it's much more successful that way. So I don't really have any experience with posting like on Craigslist and doing lots of interviews. When we were getting ready to hire another employee, It was primarily also for production, but more on the assisting side of like labeling and doing packing and shipping things. I did put out a post. I don't remember if I actually posted on Craigslist. I think I started with our social media channels first, just posting on Instagram and on our Facebook and just trying to get some word of mouth, some recommendations for the job that way. So then we did a short round of interviews and I hired somebody. However, that person quit within the first two weeks and it was more her situation, but it really, really shook my confidence in my ability to find people and hire them successfully and my general judge of character because somebody that I just hired quit in the first two weeks. So that was really, really scary. But shortly after I got this email out of the blue from Sasha, who's our current wholesale accounts manager, and she basically just told me that she would love to work for Simply Curated. So I really lucked out here because somebody came and reached out to me. Now there was a little bit of a timeline thing where I had to figure out how I was going to make it work because she was just kind of finishing up a full-time job where she was making a decent salary that I knew I probably wasn't going to be able to match. So just finding people who value the company, it can be really hard. You know, finding employees who love the company enough to be making less money than they could be making elsewhere. I feel super grateful every single day that these two wonderful women are excited to come to work and that I can provide them with a job that they love. And I hope to continue to make the work environment, you know, super awesome for them and for it to keep being a place that they love to work. So company culture is really important. If you know the company culture, 
you will be able to hire people much more easily because you will just kind of know who's going to be the right fit um, and be able to kind of gauge things that way. Also, don't be afraid to hire people on a trial basis. Hire them for a three to six week period and let them know this is a trial. I think I think um, Kristen from Thimble Press talked about this a little bit in one of the previous episodes. You know, communicate with them. Have a little trial. See if it's working out. After six weeks, you both sit down. Is it working for you? Is it working for me? And just try to get a sense. So don't be afraid to just kind of take that little jump but with a buffer and, and figure out if it's going to be a good fit for both of you. Okay, that's all the questions that I have for my first ever Q&A episode, and I really hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing it. I hope this solo episode of me talking was okay for you guys, but I really would love your feedback. Do you want more episodes like this? Do you like this, or do you prefer the interview style of episodes? Please let me know. In the next couple of months, as we gear into the trade show season, we are going to be working with a new rep, so we will have more shows than we're used to doing more orders I'm traveling a lot more so I think that if I can decide how the format of the show is going to be do we want to do a Q&A every couple of weeks or do we want it to be mostly interviews do we want more solo episodes or less any feedback you guys can give me would be great Also, I would love, love, love it if you could give the podcast a star rating on iTunes. Currently, iTunes still says that not enough people have rated the podcast for it to display an aggregate star rating. I think that having a star rating would help more people find the show or trust that it's going to be a good show. So if you could take three seconds and do that for me, I would really, really appreciate it. Thank you guys so so much for listening to our first ever Q&A episode episode six and for more information on the show notes from this episode and past episodes go to frommakertomanufacturing.com I'm Sarah Cooley you can follow me on Twitter at Sarah Cooley you can check out my business and probably the network that I'm most active on Instagram at Simply Curated and you can always send me an email Sarah at Simply if you have feedback about the show or if you want to send me another question for a future Q&A episode. Don't forget to tune back in next week for episode seven with Megan Amon, who I referenced a lot during today's episode because she has taught me so much about how to grow my business. And I can't wait to talk to her on the show. So if you have questions for Megan, I am interviewing her tomorrow, which is the same day that this episode will come out. But if you're super early and you've listened to this episode already and you have questions for Megan, leave them in the comments below this episode on Instagram or send me an email and I will do my best to put them in the show. Thank you guys so much for listening and I will see you next time. Bye.